0: Hello and welcome to this Highlights, Look Back and Rewind special edition devoted to the themes, questions and best quotes from our first ever Quality of Life conference in Lisbon and I'm happy to say… Well, I've got three people who uh, join me around stage. We're we're missing, uh, of course, one of our, um, yeah, I guess one of the, the, the ladies uh, who was riding shotgun uh, with us as well. Our still
1: on her boat back to Istanbul.
0: <laughs> is she? Yeah. Or, or I thought she was on sort of a, a barge to Cambridge. That was the voice of, of Robert Bound, our culture editors here, our editor Andrew Tuck, and our foreign executive editor um, Steve Bloomfield. Uh, gentlemen, this is just uh, still sort of reasonably uh, fresh in our memories. And I sort of feel that um, we've had had about 96 hours now to well, to sober up, um, to uh, <laughs> to also sort of you know look back and uh, and reflect uh, certainly on uh, what was really uh, an exceptional uh, weekend. And um, Rob, I, wa- I wanted to start with you because you know, we we built up uh, this uh, this conference really over probably the last six months. It was was really sort of four hard months of uh, of planning, um, and we're going to take everyone through uh, yeah, I guess some of the the highlights uh, of a day which started it uh, at, at nine o'clock and um, and ended uh, precisely at six. On the dot,
1: people people were astonished that we managed to, as as if we did radio. Well, yeah, it was was like we finished
0: it at six thirty on the dot. I was I I was so disappointed that that so many people were like, "Wow, that was really amazing! How you were able to end the conference on cue." I was like, "Hello, what have been doing for the last three years?"
2: That's Planet Radio, isn't it? We can talk to that final second. Well, I think we can just about talk to that final second. No, it was great. It was a day, and I think that conferences go well when you know there's a a nice kind of dynamic running through the day. And I think everyone. Felt you know nicely pulled through, and they knew when they were going to get their refreshments and time on the terrace. As <laughs> mm. Steve,
0: it was uh, quite um, a remarkable day, uh, just in terms of even sort of you know setting the stage for the entire thing. Um, and, and you know, just in, in numbers, we had 165 people from really all all corners um, of the world. Those were our delegates. I think we flew some 60 uh, staff, not just uh, from from London, uh, but we had colleagues joining us from from other bureaus, and then. Well, and and much of what uh, this program is going to be about uh, is really about the, the 25 speakers who are also assembled as well
3: obviously the, the speakers were were fantastic but i think what was really fascinating was that you had uh, 165 delegates who weren't just there to be uh, to sort of sit and take notes but they got involved they spoke to the speakers themselves and you could see sort of at the end of the day lots of them grouped together talking about ideas that they wanted to do and uh, and i think that will be the real success of this conference is if you know in weeks months years to come uh, new
1: collaborations will have uh, sprouted out from them and also, um, from the planning stage, we talked about trying to avoid conference fatigue at all times. You know, mm-hmm. this, is our, this is our moment in the sun. It was the first time we'd done it and the sun did shine in Lisbon.
0: Which was remarkable. I, I've exactly. been to that city about five times and the sun has never come out uh, and there, there <laughs> it was for, on the hop for three days. Exactly,
1: for all to see. But um, to avoid that conference fatigue, which seems to set in, people, set, people loved ours for it not setting in, I suppose, was by having people, uh, our, our guests, our speaking guests, not proselytizing from a pulpit but actually having conversations with each other our job really was to kick people off wasn't it to
2: get the ball rolling (laughs) call it that (laughs) (laughs) and for whatever
1: wherever your balls are rolling and for i guess hopefully they're rolled in the right not not a
2: lanyard in sight we gave people a nice little leather strap made in portugal to put around their wrist which was a, a demure subtle way of kind of getting in and out of the event did anyone see it worn around anything
1: other than anyone's wrist Uh, No, but I I, I went to bed early on. on, on, I wasn't looking, The party did
0: get a bit raucous. Uh, We should take people maybe to about 9.07 in the morning, 9.08, Rob, we... uh uh, of course, we were all on stage at the very beginning, um, but we started uh, looking at, at media and how media really sets uh, the tone uh, for the day. And uh, we were on stage. We just had Louisa Sobral. She, she did uh, a little number for us, which, uh, which was, yeah, as we said, you know, that's what great radio stations do. You sort of bounce out of, out of bed uh, and, and you want sort of, you know, the smooth sounds of, of someone uh, who really is doing a bit of a tone setter for you.
1: Yeah she was a, yeah she was a good booking actually it was lo- lovely to have her um and her band uh, sort of wending their way through some of their hits and also we're in Portugal, like the idea of having, I don't know, did you want a hip-hop artist, Tyler? Not really, not that time in the morning. Um, she was super cool, um, and she brought us into our first panel, which was entitled How Do Media Brands Make Our Cities? We tried to give an idea at the beginning of the sort of media metabolism that we all enjoy. Yeah. Um, and maybe we should introduce the four speakers that we had. We had Andrew Keane, um, who worked in Silicon Valley for 30 years um, and ended up, or well, his most recent claim to fame, was writing a book called um, The Internet Is Not The Answer, where he he, he's a bit of a doubter um he's sort of an iconoclast in that sense mm-hmm.
0: um he's a polemicist and he's
1: very brilliant um he was an amusing character to have on the stage
0: he was uh then from Amsterdam uh, we we were joined by uh, one of the editors uh, from a newspaper we've covered from time to time partly because they're just bucking the trend they're real innovators um on on this continent um and and that was uh, Hans Neuenhaus uh, from from NRC and of course NRC handles but uh, fame. Uh, and then uh, a little further north, we're also joined uh, by, by Dorte Reis, uh from Denmark's radio. Uh, she looks after radio drama. And uh, I think actually had one of sort of the mo- more inter- interesting sort of quotes. She became, uh, she really sort of coined a term, uh, which I think a lot of people picked up on over the conference. And, uh, and last but not least, a gentleman um, who probably I would say sort of came to really define the weekend in many ways. I think he did. Um, right from the get go, Eric
1: Speakerman, um, the sort of legendary typographer um, and communicator. I mean, he's, he's had his fingers in all sorts of things from, yeah, from typefaces and <laughs> fonts to city planning and even telling certain members of staff how to dress and what time to get up in the morning. Absolutely. And he had,
0: he, Eric Speakerman had no shortage of costume changes himself.
1: Let's yeah, have right. a, was like
0: Beyonce. <laughs> Let's have a, a listen uh, to the first panel.
4: A lot of media brands that I work with don't see themselves as brands yet. They are so full of this, you know, this fact that journalists have to be the fourth estate to make sure that we, we, we all read the truth, that they haven't realized that they're actually, the reason why they exist still is because they're a brand. And the brand has a contract with its users. Uh, it goes to sometimes as far as religion, I mean, why would people queue around the block for the next Apple product for crying out loud? Yeah. Which you can buy the next day, but not the queue that is in sleeping bags and stuff, because the brand has this promise. And media brands, if they have a promise, and indeed it's because they deliver content that is unique, whether they get paid up front like yeah. German yeah, yeah. TV stations or Danish ones do or whatever, uh, if we break that contract with the user, like any brand in the in the world, once the product goes rotten, they run away. Unfortunately, that brand also goes for nasty brands like Fox News, for example. I, I know many people in the States but it's nonetheless, who believe that People know what
1: it stands for, don't
4: they? Yeah, it, it has a contract and it delivers on all the prejudice. Uh, so you know, brand. I mean, the Nazis were a brand. I mean, they were the first ever. Well, not the first. After the Catholic Church and the Roman Empire, the third successful brand. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was very that's successful cool. and the best graphics ever for crying out
5: loud. Yeah. But really,
4: uh, are successful in this in this evil way. I mean, you don't swing around 80 million people in a couple of years' time without branding. Let's face it. So uh, I, I preach all, to all my my clients in, in the media world. You have to brand yourself, and they think, "Oh my God, that's that's horrible." And you know, we. We're not a brand, we are, we, we are the truth people and we distribute wisdom and stuff. We're not branded, but there are brands. There need to be brands. And they are absolutely, they learn from, from the, the, the little brands. They might learn from you that a brand is way more than publishing something every morning.
0: Yeah. Andrew, are you surprised um, that we still hear so many media companies, maybe ones which have newspapers at the core of their businesses, um, that digital is still going to save the day for them, that um, everything's sort of web-based. Like it's only been around for three weeks,
6: right? <laughs> um, I am surprised, and they, they're the ones who are going to die um, because they don't get it. I mean, they don't understand that, that that digital is the problem rather than the solution for media brands. That it's very, very hard to make money, almost impossible for newspapers. Uh, you had the, the internet has created a massive crisis of the former professional creative class, whether they're journalists or photographers or writers now you know in some state subsidized media organizations um, you, you don't have that problem uh, but the, the challenge if if i had a newspaper or if i owned a publishing house or if i was a, a photographer the, the the challenge is to reinvent yourself outside digital because digital is the problem There, you know digital is great for a brand it's great for getting views it's important to be on Twitter and Facebook and, and, and market things to death, but the, the, the economic system has broken down online. Um, it's just harder and harder to make money. Advertising has been more and more commodified, or it's harder and harder to get people to pay for stuff. So you have to have that, um, that, that sort of seductive physical product. And experience. I think media is uh, 21st century media will be more and more experiential, and uh, you know, coming back to, to what we're talking about, and, and digital isn't experiential. There's no experience online. It's 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 uh, it's that's what, again one of the surprising conclusions of say 25 years of the internet is it's not an experiential medium. It's something else.
0: Brilliant stuff from our, our media panel. Uh, you were listening to this highlights look back rewind special edition devoted to Monocle's quality of life conference with me Tyler Berlay, Robert Bound, Andrew Tuck, and Steve Bloomfield. Uh, Andrew, we uh, we started to um, look at you. Know, you start with good media, and you probably start you know uh, with good media um, with with four walls around you. Hopefully not not always. Um, but we also wanted to really challenge the idea of um, of the perfect
2: home. What was great about this panel was that we had people who were thinking quite deeply about the way we build our homes. I think Ilsa Crawford, who runs uh, Studio Ilsa, she was great talking about actually how if you create a great home, it's good for your mental health. She was really thinking deeply about the questions, but still producing a, a great environment for you to have fun in as well. But but just thinking a little bit more than most people do when they design a building. And we we're also joined by the wonderful Issei Weinfeld, who... Uh, Brazil, probably best architect, most, one of the most famous uh, architects alongside Marcel Kogan. But he was great because you know, he does great apartments and great buildings and great individual homes, but he was also. Keen to build a brothel, it turns out. Of all things, he he was quite spiky when we asked him what was the one thing you haven't built yet. Yeah, and also we were joined from Sweden by uh, Oscar uh, Engelbert of Oscar Properties,
0: a uh, very interesting develop, uh, developer um, out of that market as well. So uh, it took them a little while, I think, to sort of warm up in that uh, in that session. But I think when they got going, um, uh, well, it was good. Um, here they are.
7: Well, is there is a reason why we built, you know, several projects in Sweden, and it's not. An accident. Our experience of contractors there has been great, and also clients. I mean, ultimately, you cannot build a good building without a good client. It's, it's clear, and there, it's a much more um, straightforward conversation about materials that last, um, about choosing the real thing rather than a copy, etc. I mean, you, there is a basic integrity and. I think it, it does come down partly to the idea that the you you know, buying something that doesn 't last, why would you do it um, whereas I think and that 's a longer term mindset, which you don 't have so much in the u k where I think it 's like you know if it looks like it it 's fine, and that almost actually sometimes it can become quite peculiar um, that by trying to encourage people to do something that um, Lasts that in some way that's, you know, wrong. It's a, it's, a, it's, a weird, it's a weird paradox that happens now when you have discussions in the UK. But that is partly because the system there is all about the short-term. I mean, I think it's entirely down to a lack of vision for the city, for the neighbourhood, longer-term goals. It's the in-and-out mentality.
2: It's in Brazil and... and uh Where you work, particularly in Sao Paulo, are there buildings that you would like to build that haven't come off your
8: drawing board yet? Yes, yes. Uh, Many, many, many. But I can uh, tell you three a gas station, a brothel. A brothel? Yes, okay. And also I was thinking in the morning, because you know that, unfortunately, because of the violence of the city, our houses, we have to design with fences with, in Sao Paulo, with uh, high uh, walls. And you have, uh, when I design a house, I have two clients, the client and Mossad. Uh, because uh, we have the guard's area that is very, very strong in front of the house. And then I was thinking that I would love to design someday the guard's house.
2: <laughs> so that's good. A gas station, a brothel and a guard's house. Yes,
8: but first the brothel.
2: Okay, first... <laughs> <laughs> um, <it'll say> you. <laughs> Uh, for you uh, is there a building that hasn't come off the off of the uh, computer yet and made it into reality are you would you be intrigued we looked there at some social housing projects you know the idea of you know how we do re, re, re-engineer the city to allow you know younger people to have homes you've talked about the shrinking size of units would you be intrigued to do something in that space
7: I'd be fascinated to look at if we could do um, yeah a new shared living that had diversity, because I think we are ending up with these sort of mono areas where you know, it's, it's one type of person only walking down the street, I think, to get different types of people, different ages into um, one complex, but also, as you say, looking at what you could take out of that small unit and put into the common space because it, it still seems crazy to me that you know, although the unit itself is shrinking in terms of financial possibility, we're still cramming in the washing machine and you know, the bicycle and all of those things. It makes no sense, I think, to look at that um, holistically, I think would be great. And to come up with something that is you know, warm would fascinate me. Warm values in a cold system, that one.
1: You just heard um, our three panellists, Ilsa Crawford, Issei Weinfeld and Oscar Engelbert, talking about how to build the perfect house. No small topic. Um, the next one we're going to tackle is how the museum became the modern cultural powerhouse. Um, for this, again, we managed to book three wonderful guests. Taco Dibbets is the director of collections for the Rijksmuseum, the Museum um, of Amsterdam that opened um, two years ago to much fanfare, deservedly so after 10 years of perder. Martin Roth, the director of the v museum um has got a huge slate of exhibitions um to take over and mm. take the uh take the credit for perhaps but a man that is 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 nothing if not a, a restless um he, he's not a man that sits on his laurels no i think martin Roth. no no, he wasn't um and jack persekian um who's the director of the palestinian museum the upcoming palestinian museum um what was great about this um panel was the fact that I think we introduced three people to each other, two of which knew each other, but yeah. they hadn't all met before. Some people had heard of each other, um, but not met. What some, And there was a lot of... Um, it wasn't just business cards, it was mobile numbers exchanged at the end of this one, which is a really satisfying thing to to put people together. Um, and neither was it a plain sailing panel, No, was it? People, thankfully, sort of disagreed with each other. And I, and I have to say,
0: the, going into this panel... Well, no, it was halfway through this panel, so I was I was um, standing at, at the back of the room, and, and there was this, this moment, um, and maybe we can hear from Martin Roth first, but I just thought, you know, the ingredients for a great conference... Is that you really need two rather outspoken, occasionally grumpy Germans?
6: What I think is even more exciting is this idea of a curator and that every, everything has to be curated today. It's like uh, Hans Ulrich Obrist created his own sect, his own followers around, <laughs> around the globe in the 1970s. <laughs> being a curator was, I mean, that was really kind of dusty and I didn't want to do it. I remember when I started to work in the museums, my friends from university said, I mean, are you really sure you want to do it? Um, so, I think that's the other—that's the other thing: how you deal with history, how you combine history, how you create future, out of out of history. And so, that profession of the curator obviously uh, is something that's very, very attractive. But I mean, that modern part sits in the museum; you just have to open it and tell it to the public.
1: Yeah, I wanted to—you mentioned dusty. Uh, how do you, how, I mean, the Rijksmuseum Taco uh, reopened a couple of years ago after quite a long absence. It had its uh, eyes shut, as we saw in the video, for, for 10 years or so. How, do you, how did you, when, when you were refreshing the collection and, and the physical space, how did you stop it from being that thing? From whom did you learn and how did you, because you did a huge edit of the stuff that you had in there as well. There's less stuff on the walls than there used to be as well.
5: Yeah, first of all, I think it's, um... I do think there's a reason why people come to museums so much. And it partly has to do with the kind of crisis museums had around the millennium. And they were asking themselves, why, what is our relevance in a digital age, where everything is digital and people move around wherever they go. There is a completely different set of tools. And I think that it was an insecurity of museums to say, oh, what's our relevance? And this morning we heard it as well. The relevance was because we live in a digital age, so people want authenticity. And I think this search for authenticity in places, so in really physical places, is a big part of the rise of museums again. People go to a city, they want to eat the food, Did people go to Tuscany and they said, yeah, I want to have real Tuscan food, but they also want to see the art, the things that are made there. So it's very much focused on a sense of place, a sense of time and authenticity. And in the Rijksmuseum, when we did the renovation, we said, first of all, it's about the authentic objects, something that you can only see in the Rijksmuseum and that you can't see in any high street, because there you have shops that you where you can shop all over the world for Gucci, you can only see the Rijksmuseum right in that in Amsterdam, at the the art at the place where it's made. And the other decision we made is also something said this morning, is that we went entirely for the quality, and for the content. So when we were we made a rigorous decision of not thinking about which device are we going to have our audio tours or our um, video tours or whatever, which device are we going to have them on. We spoke with the military, I think it was 2004, and they said, well, if it comes to modes of communication, we can look three, four years ahead, but we don't know how the public will use it. So. And we knew that we were going to be closed for a much longer time, so we said, we're going to choose the device at the last moment. Nobody knew that we would have iPads, that we would have apps or whatever. So it's not about the way those modes of communication, it's about what you communicate to go for quality. Um, And artists of all time, it's not something, people come to a museum to see something authentic And the great thing with art is that great art is always contemporary. It was contemporary when it was created, but when people now see Vermeer, the milkmaid, for them it's relevant at this moment. So it's contemporary for them as well.
3: You've just heard there from Martin Roth, Jack Pasekian, and Anne Taco Dibbits on how the museum
0: became the modern cultural powerhouse. Can I interrupt you again? You can. Not again. I've just the first again. time interrupting you. <laughs> 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 that panel, though, as well. I just, I really felt that. Um, I know it was it was a case of sort of hitting our stride um, at that point, but it was it was just it was so lively, and I think Rob, just as as you were introing it, uh, you just got the sense that you know of course, great panel, good things are going to happen, not just sort of amongst um, the gentlemen on stage, but I think also I think how just, you know, people afterwards, they just, they, they really sort of felt that there was an interesting way that, that these institutions, you know, not only define them, themselves as brands, but what they do for cities and nations and, and beyond.
3: And, and they also, they didn't agree with each
0: other. No. Which I think was,
3: you know, sometimes at these conferences, people can be a bit like, oh, well, you know, yes, that's an interesting point you make. Mm. Um, but, you know, when you've got Martin Ross sort of, it's almost you know, poking Taco in the ribs, going, "No, no, how are you going to do that? I don't, I don't agree." There was, a, there was a real liveliness to it, Rob.
1: Yeah, there was. It was, it was a really satisfying one to do, and that was one of the ones that attracted a lot of people afterwards who wanted to meet our um, speakers and wanted to kind of like take notes on further questions mm. and all the rest of it. And they were good. You're right. You know, I guess it's one of those things as well when. It's the lack of asking the question of how do you how important is it to have lots of people visiting your museum <laughs> um, if you're asking questions of that nature rather than hopefully trying to poke them in the ribs a little bit yeah um, and get them to play then then yeah I guess that starts um, that sets the level of the bar where are we going next uh, we're going next to uh, our sort of our, our final session before lunch which was
3: cities uh, oh, should make oh, yeah. things. I think yeah, everyone was getting a little bit. Oh, <laughs> is lunch coming up. Um Not least because, of course, one of the the speakers uh, on this panel, Kamal uh, Mazawak uh, was responsible for lunch as well. Uh, he was also joined by Catarina Portas uh, and David Hyatt uh, and Tyler. This was what I found interesting about this panel was first of all we had uh, our first Portuguese uh, guest up on stage, um, and of course the next day pretty much the entire conference had gone down to A Vida Portuguesa to, yes. to actually buy pretty much
0: everything that Catarina well, I, I makes. Yeah, I thought that we could have partly rewritten our business model. We, we should have <laughs> taken some kind of commission because you saw so many people striding around Lisbon uh, with uh, their uh, their monocle tote bag, uh, but then lots of, uh, of nice bags from Avida uh, Vida Portuguesa. Um, and and that was great also. This was uh, uh, me on stage uh, with, uh, with our Sophie Grove as well.
9: I arrived yesterday to Lisbon I was here at 11, you know, I wanted to have lunch. I don't want to go have lunch like anywhere else in the world. I went to Ramiro. The uh, the waiters are awful, uh, they are not very hospitable, uh, but it's part of their charm and it's part of the whole experience. This is a sense of place, this is a taste of place. Like, either we're, you know, like just sitting in one, ca- on, on a couch and having the same experience with like different geography and climate, or we're really, you know, seeing what what the experience is. David just spoke, he didn't spoke about his genes. Why didn't you, this is the product. He spoke about the people, and this is all what it is about. It's just about the people. People are different. We have to celebrate this diversity as a richness, but we must get all together around common ethics and around common values. Do you think this is a shift to a more, almost a new definition
2: of what luxury is? You know, We felt luxury was like these big glossy brands that you've got in every single place. Now actually, you know, the, especially the audience we find through Monocle, you know, the things they find a luxury are, yeah, the jeans and they can tell you the story about it. It's the,
10: the products that they find in Caterina's store. I, mean, I think um, we've, we've, ch- we've changed how we think about things, I think. And uh, we, we lived in that world where uh, actually we threw away everything and actually the story didn't matter and actually we it kind of left us quite empty and as people you suddenly go actually the story does matter because the story should always matter and and i think that we kind of lost ourselves for a decade i I just want to jump in because you some of your genes sell
2: for you know 175 pounds 250 euros you're not you're not selling a you know a a product that's about social awareness or kind of do-gooding product you're selling in a way, you're competing against those luxury brands, but as somebody who's got the choice of going into uh, a big luxury brand store or going into a shop and buying your jeans is cho- choosing
10: your jeans. Do you think that's just story? Well, I, th- I think you can't rely totally on story. I-, I don't know a great world brand that's built on sort of sentiment alone. And, uh, and actually, um, like the best brands in the world make you feel something. And, and for me, I want to build a brand around ideas. The things I love most are ideas and how they bring change to this world. And for us, like, we're the first jeans company in the world to have a history tag, so the stories of that product when it goes into the second-hand store go with it. You know, we just launched last week a pocket that you know, is a hack-proof pocket, so your phone can't be hacked when your phone's in there. And so like, our job is to have ideas. And, and actually, through ideas and a great story, I think we can get 400 people jobs back. And I think your dreams should scare you. Your mum wants sensible dreams for you, but you have to have scary dreams. And I wake up 4 a.m. in the morning and go, oh my god, how am I gonna get 400 people their jobs back? I keep coming back to the thing of I love quality and I love ideas. And actually, the great thing about ideas people is that they love ideas too. So if we have ideas, we're gonna attract the people we want. So that's what we do. Uh, well, that was the session on
2: cities should make things with Kamal Muzawak, Katerina Portas, and David Hyatt. Yeah, that was um, I like that um, also just purely from a setup point of view as well.
0: It was the only, uh, and, and we should probably say though, our Jillian DeBias did a really brilliant job of of having you know, a series of films which which set up pretty much every well every single session had this little mini doc of sort of three or three or four minutes. What I liked about that session though is that we had. A, a small bio, probably 90 seconds, on on each of those characters. I think that also just gave it a different flavor, I think, going into it. Everyone had sort of, they'd been sort of fluffed up in advance, hadn't, hadn't they, Rob? Everyone needs a fluffer. I mean, this they is, do. what was this, a
1: conference about? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed,
0: <Basically,
1: laughs> it happened in no, a hotel it, with no name in Los Angeles.
2: But it was nice to see around a swimming pool. Kamal was out <laughs> going around Beirut with his kind of basket on his arm at the farmer's market. Katerina Portas kind of you know, stocking the shelves with those Portuguese brands that she's helped revive, and David in his factory and Cardigan in Wales, uh, being super proud of reintroducing some kind of proper manufacturing mm. jobs to that town. So at this point, and as Steve said earlier, uh, Kamal Mozaic, uh,
0: he... Art directed was the creative director uh, on a really amazing lunch, and and this, you know, we we were of course uh, staging this whole thing at the Ritz, uh, the Four Seasons Ritz in uh, in Lisbon, and we just went on this glorious terrace, and and then Lona, who's a, a wonderful maker of outdoor furniture and 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 canvas. Uh, that, that terrace looked absolutely brilliant uh, this sort of sea of just you know nice black and white stripes and everyone just um, it, it rained for about a second but it was uh, it was it was absolutely glorious sunshine and as we all came back um, and maybe it's just worth having a listen uh, Louisa Sobral was there to, to welcome um, everybody back with, uh, with a song or two The skies are blue The girls are
11: thin the boys don't sing for a week or ten. I was in Paris today You wanna eat buggy all the time Sit on the streets drinking good wine I was in Paris today I was in Paris today But now, not in Paris anymore and I love my heart <laughs> On the second floor Hanging behind the door On a plays place On a green street And fruit, it looks Oh, so sweet You feel so small Next to Notre Dame And even the subway Has its charm la da 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 da
1: you just heard the sound of our lunch break, wasn't it classy? That was Luisa Sobral and her band playing us through. Um, well, Kamal Mazawak's rather delicious lunch out on the terrace. Mm. By the way, on the at that lunch. You know, it was, sort, it was half our job to scoot around and make sure everyone was sort of, you know, happy. Mm. But I was a bit like a dating, dating club, wasn't it? No one, I didn't see anyone that really knew each other sitting next to each other. No, um, no one that knew each other, certainly at, the, at our welcome coffee and papers session in the morning, was sitting next to the same person. I don't think that's because they didn't get on, mm. but because they've met someone new by the time it was lunch. I guess that was a,
0: I guess that was a sign of the success of it. Um, the wine was good. The wine is very
1: Portuguese, good. Portuguese, the Portuguese keep it to themselves, when we're happy to visit. They're a
0: little bit like the Swiss in that sense, yeah, right. And maybe that's also sort of a measure of quality. Don't tell people how don't good your no, what's tell, happening in yeah, your vineyards. Exactly. I, I do have to say, though, um, it, there was a bit of a, a special accommodation uh, to uh, Sarah, uh, our Sarah from the uh, the cafe uh, here in London, who uh, w- actually came down on a mercy mission. Um, Emily Smith, um, our director of communications, said, "You know, I just look at you know Portugal." Maybe great in wine. Maybe not so great on coffee. Maybe, maybe maybe we didn't find it. I think we need to airlift in one of our own baristas, which we did. And boy, did that lady work. Uh, and then we had to have our Kauru Ishikawa also come in as uh, as technical support for her as well. It was pretty good. Yes. Note no for next year's conference, uh, two full Marzocco machines. Maybe for a I saw carry,
1: um underneath it like a like a mechanic on one of those roly um, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, gantry <laughs> things underneath the coffee machine with his uh, with his uh, spanner set out. Where are we going next? Should we reinvent the
0: high street? I think we should. No uh, small task. No, ap- absolutely not. And uh, it was was a bit of a we, we really we stretched far for this one because uh, we uh, and we really stretched all the way to, to Queensland uh, because we had uh, not only uh, Mary Louise Teal uh, who's uh, been part of the the James Street. Uh, Initiative uh, in Brisbane, a really uh, quite remarkable reinvention uh, of an area which has been sort of uh, rather down and out. Uh, we also had uh, Jay Spencer uh, up the street, or at least down the street in our case, from from Bangkok. And anyone who saw uh, who saw the forecast uh, will have seen this great story on this business um, and real interesting community venture that he's done in the form of, of The Bark Yard. And I think that people are sort of delighted uh, to sort of see him talking about about that project.
1: Um, Beverly Churchill, who you obviously know, is the creative director of Capco, who gives one of those things, who gives it a very human face, something that yes. sounds like it's not on your street, but actually is on your street. Very it's much. Capco. Beverly's your brilliant at that. Up street. Up your street. I didn't say up your street. I didn't say so. didn't no. say up your street. It's going to be like that. <laughs> um, and ingrid Richards and Adrian Spence, who are the co-directors, um, at Richards and Spence. all they need is is a name that doesn't belie who their names are. Exactly. And they'll and they'll um, be sorted. Um, this was a tricky, long panel. I mean, it was uh, there was a lot of people to fit in here. Um, Tyler, you hosted this um, with Andrew. This is fascinating stuff. Here's how to reinvent the high street.
7: There is no great alchemy to it. It's gut instinct. And it's all about that balance of what feels right, where your kind of big destination brands like Apple, or Balthazar are in the mix next to a little kind of craft store. And you know, the joy of Covent Garden is, you know, you have a craft store next to Chanel. And there's been lots of talk today about making and, the, and what is luxury and, and what luxury stands for today. But if you, if you pair it right back to some of the basics of creativity, craftsmanship, and quality, you will find both of those in both ends of that spectrum. And you need that rub, I think, to make an interesting place.
3: Those brands can coexist on a street in a way that if
0: they're in a mall, you couldn't probably put Chanel next to a bar. Because like. you're looking, the developer needs a sure bet. In, in a way. But, but also, too, that once you're in a shopping centre, you're branded by the centre, whereas on the street you, you have anony, anonymity as a, mm. as a brand, so those things can coexist. And I think that's the thing about high streets as opposed to malls is that you get that chore-based, convenience-based shopping, which means that you get that social accidental social interaction. Right. Yeah. And also, going
8: back to
11: what
7: Andrew said in the first question, you know, that, and interestingly, we've had and these aren't the national brands, these are the independent multi-brand fashion stores. Two or three of them who actually ventured down having an e-commerce site on their website have now pulled it down. And so they're better off spending money, their customers prefer to come into the store and have the experience and they're spending the money back on making the experience in the store, one that the customer remembers and returns for and which is a, is a complete turnaround. And that's again what we build on. We build on the experience of coming to James Street time and time again and going away feeling really good about it so that you wanna go back and do it again.
0: Uh, let's jump a little north uh, from Brisbane up to, to Bangkok. Uh, and Jay, why don't you set up for us and we'll, we'll, we'll cycle through some, some images um, as well, but what was the opportunity that you saw uh, to, to develop the Barkyard, And just what, what are we looking at here?
8: Oh, well, this is, um, this is the main uh, grass area. This is called Central Bark. Um, obviously, it's a play on words. Um, we, the whole place is supposed to be fun. Um, we wanted to design something that was new, a new retail and uh, a, a neighborhood, basically, something that hadn't been done before in Bangkok. And, and maybe just
0: tell us why is there an opportunity with with dogs? Because there's there's a certain okay. there's a certain issue with legalities and dogs in parks, in, correct?
8: Well, I, actually, in most Asian cities, um, but especially in Bangkok, you cannot take dogs into parks because of um, the Bangkok Metropolitan Authority, which is the uh, under the governor, doesn't allow dogs because of hygiene, sanitation. They're afraid of uh, diseases. But health and safety, but also, I mean, there's a lot of stakeholders in the whole park area. So for us, we saw it as an opportunity to, to really jump on this and, and use it. Because as a dog lover, there's a lot of people who, you know, there's a pent up demand. Where do you take your dogs in, in a big metropolis? So we decided to come up with this, um, this plan to, to make it into a neighborhood, a place where people can come, take their dogs, but also there's a retail component as well. There is uh, restaurants. There is um, there's, a, there's a swimming pool for dogs. There is, <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, that's the swimming. pool, just everyone knows that this, this is the deck and that's a swimming pool that's this, sort of fenced off.
8: This, this is Berkeley Square, obviously a play on words, um, and uh, so it's a saltwater swimming pool, which is uh, very good on the dog's skin. And we have lots of shops around this this pool area. But what's important is all these shops are individual shops. It's the first of their kind in Thailand. So. Uh, we're supporting young, new um, new talent. And people uh, appreciate this, so they keep coming back.
2: Well, that was Ingrid Richards and Adrian Spence, Beverly Churchill, Mary Louise Thiel and Jay Spencer. Indeed it
0: was. And you were listening to this special Look Back, Rewind and Highlights, special edition devoted to all of the themes, questions, best quotes from our first ever Quality of Life conference In Lisbon, with me, Tyler Bradley, Andrew Tuck, Steve Bloomfield, and Robert Bound. Uh, Offices, uh, of course, are always near and dear uh, to our hearts. Andrew, they've um, they really sort of formed a big part of our book on um, our business book, which came out uh, last autumn. Um, They also got a bit of a play in cozy homes um, as well, uh, people's places of work, and that was really that sort of. Domestic, uh, how much do you bring in, um, yeah, I guess, references uh, from from the home uh, into the modern workplace versus how much do you need uh, to have a sense of, of discipline and order and and re- recognizing that you need a strong sense of social capital um, in, in the office as well really became a huge, I'd say probably the key discussion point uh, amongst um, a variety of people. Sam Hecht, of course, globally. Uh, renowned, well recognized um, in industrial designer, really thoughtful um, on on that uh, session. We also had uh, Mirko Kulberg uh, of of Artec fame, uh, but now um, heading up uh, also a, a big part of also Vitra and Vitra's home uh, business as well. And then also uh, Nat Cheshire uh, from uh, from Auckland, uh, again an architect uh, who's, uh,
2: who's had quite a bit of play in the magazine. And what was great was. It- here was three people talking about architecture. These people who know really what's happening. You know, Nat is a very young architect. Uh, Mirku knows what goes into our offices, but none of them felt the solution was a beanbag and a slide. There was a real sense that you need to build spaces that actually, as you say, there was a social capital. You, you know where you're going to sit. There's a space where you belong that there is an environment where your work can unfold, that many of the revolutions we're supposedly being uh, presented with are hardly revolutions at all. No, let's uh, have a listen.
9: For, for many, many years, um, certainly 40 years since the 50s, most offices were built not by the people working in them, but by companies that represented those workers. So the, the, the way they fashioned the offices and developed the offices was... Was, was systematized and was, you know, was generally quite cold and, and, um, and it was totally performance related. Um, and uh, it's only really uh, quite recently at the junction point of technology, when technology was, uh, became extremely mobile, um, it meant that, that the individual worker, the reasons for going to a place that we call work kind of got eroded and evaporated. And it's only really now uh, over the last 10 years where um, it's flipped, where, where, where people themselves are very much deciding upon what their office is like. And uh, both good and bad, their reference point is home yeah, because that's where they feel most comfortable. The problem is that when you try to recreate the home on a larger scale beyond a startup, um, it it suddenly doesn't work because it doesn't have any of that efficient performance aspect to it. So that's why we often see offices, I've seen many of them, where they they almost look like pseudo homes. They're trying to be soft and comfortable, but it just doesn't really work on a bigger scale. essentially to try and answer the question, um, uh, we're still, I think, trying to discover what, what comfort means in a, in a productive co- concept. Um, it's, uh, you know, many of the images that you showed are, are really fantastic. They look warm, they look friendly, um, but as soon as you try to scale it up, it, it, it starts to become really quite difficult. Mm.
0: Mirko, I'm intrigued because I'm not sure what the the residential um, or, let's say, more domestic split is between uh, office uh, at Vitra, but then here comes this interesting acquisition where Vitra purchases Artec, which I mostly associate uh, with... Domestic environments. So of course, we see lots of our tech as well used in offices. Is that was that part of the thinking um, as well on on the part of uh, the owners of Vitra that they thought they almost to hedge their bets a little bit. Uh, interesting to bring in this company uh, because you can complement uh, more of the office world that they're in. What was what was the thinking?
12: Yes, I, I think there's, there are many dimensions. One thing was obviously that, that it's a great collection, great masterpieces of classics, which fit extremely well beside the Eames of having having like other species among, among these. But it's, it's about collage, whether it's used in home or, or whether it is in office. This kind of monotonic uh, office uh, spaces you don't, you don't want to see and you don't actually, I, I, th- I don't think that they are attractive for the people who are trying to get as employees there. Uh, On the other side, I think that for homes, it was very obvious that uh, from Vitra's perspective, we could be opening completely a new home concept in general, just being making the whole whole new approach for end consumers. And also, I think that one thing was this kind of whole art, cultural background of the company, which was very attractive, also communication perspective or branding perspective as well.
3: That was Sam Hecht, Nat Cheshire and Mirko Kulberg on Let's Build Better Offices
0: and then Tyler we're into the home straight we, we we were absolutely this is uh this was really um that the part of almost every conference, Steve, where you, you see people heading for, for the door, um, you know, they start to fidget. You're having, well, by this, we were heading probably, I guess we kicked off around probably um, 5.30 uh, Lisbon time. And you know, you would probably think that many people are thinking, should I go shopping? Uh, you know, what should I do? But the room was packed and everyone was, I mean, not just because this was a session that uh, that you were co-anchoring with, with Andrew. It, it was mainly, could have been that, maybe. Yeah, it was, could have it been that. It was mainly
3: that. But no, I think it was mainly because it was Eric Speakman coming back once. <laughs> again, uh, we had him with uh, Demian Horst, uh, who's a programme director at the Umir Institute of Design. Uh, and then we had two really interesting uh, mayors, the uh, Stian Berger-Rusland, who's the governing mayor of Oslo. Um, and if I have to say, I had a favourite panellist. It was this man, Rui Moreira, uh, the mayor of Porto, who I think it's fair to say is uh, quite a, an interesting character, and not the sort of person that you often see leading a city.
0: No, um, absolutely not. And I think that it was just... There was a great talking point, but it was it was incredible how this I think really sort of created something of a of a crescendo. Um, Andrew, this is obviously it's a big beat for you, um, certainly on the urbanist. Uh, obviously, just you know, editing and, and something which touches all, all sections of of the magazine uh, in terms of. What people sort of walked away with, um, and and
2: for you personally, I think what stood out. Uh, I think from this panel, what was really fascinating was you know, that everybody was very keen about the you know, the sense of place, the sense of ownership of place as well, and all really keen that they shouldn't be creating you know cookie cutter cities. They were they. What was also interesting, I think that people were passing information along that panel. You imagined again, Steve, that many of these people would have been switching phone numbers. Well, we saw Stian and uh, Rui hanging out afterwards discussing elements of their cities. Two people, one with a huge budget sitting in an oil wealthy nation and somebody sitting in a nation that's taken a bit of a hit. But again, that debate was continuing on and off stage.
3: It was really continuing on and off stage, and it was um, and it was one of the most sort of you know, endearing uh, elements, I think, of the of the whole conference. The fact that you know as we were saying before, it wasn't just the speakers talking to each other and getting ideas; it was the, it was the delegates as well. Uh, and I think this panel was the the perfect way to end the conference.
2: All four of you, if in what just one sentence, I will start with you, Eric. If you could name a city other than your own home city that you think is a great city, and just in a sentence tell us why you like that city? So it could be a city that you've benchmarked around the world, a city you think delivers quality. Connected to our theme of quality of life, where would be a city that you think that our audience should look
4: at? It's difficult because there's there's certain times of year when you know I'd love to be I love to be in small cities like Copenhagen or, or Amsterdam. They're actually quite small cities, but the weather sucks half of the half of the time. Um, and, 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 you know, I like being in London, but the, the money sucks. Um, I, I like being in San Francisco, but the millionaires suck. Um, I love being in Berlin, but the weather sucks. Mm-hmm. So to me, it would be uh, the center of Berlin uh, transported to uh, the Italian coast. <laughs> 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 I know that's not the right answer, but that's all that's, I think. Mean. That's a good. No, it is the right answer. Uh, Damian Trumpler. Uh, for me, it would be Amsterdam. I think a very nice reference, and I can't forget just the sight of these families riding around with the kids in these little boxes in front of them. No helmets, nothing, All nothing helmets. happens. They're tro- totally respected on the, on the traffic. I think that's quite magical. And people seem really happy there.
2: Stier, and where do you look at as a benchmarking place that uh, would you like to move the center of Oslo to the south of France? Uh,
13: well, um, one of my favorite cities is Nice, but um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that is, <laughs> that is wonderful. But, um, uh, my favorite city in, in Europe is, uh, except Oslo of course, and Lisbon, and, uh, and, Lisbon, and Lisbon, and Porto. <laughs> Porto. Yeah, uh, but I, I think it's uh, I think it's uh, it's London, and the reason I think London is so outstanding is the the fact that they have managed more than any other cities in my opinion, in Europe, to include uh, different cultures and uh, actually try to manage uh, different culture. Really? Uh, yeah. And the reason as long f- as you have money, that is. Uh, yeah, maybe. The Norwegians but, have the money, do but, but, yeah. but the yeah. point is that we have had many European cities as metropoles in, in the world. Today, it's only one standing, and that's London. And I think one of the reasons oh, for that Is that over several hundred years they have integrated different parts of the world in their city. So no matter what happens, if it's a depression, war, uh, financial crisis, they will always have a core of people trying, uh, managing to see a different perspective, trying to see another way of, of operating, trying to find another way of doing things than the rest. And I think. That is something, with all the problems they also have, really should inspire other cities. How do you actually do,
2: Let's do this? Let's bring Rui back in quickly. Is it, is it Oslo? Well, uh, maybe I lived in Oslo
10: back
9: in the 80s. It was a great city.
10: Back in the 70s, it was a great city. Oh, oh, a great city. But of
9: course, for a for Portuguese, <laughs> the weather is tough. I, I also like Hamburg very much, um, maybe because uh, my grandmother was there, and she, she ran to Portugal just in time because she was Jewish. So I love Hamburg, it's a beautiful city, but all in all, uh, because I think of cities together with the quality of life, with the food, with the weather, I think probably a city like Bologna in Italy is my favorite, with university, a city that really hasn't changed that much, and which is very lively, it has a lot of young people. It's, it's an unpredictable city to suggest, but it's, when I go there, I think maybe one day I could live here.
0: That was our final session on. Here's how to make a, a better city, and that was um, that was the point. Uh, well, Steve and Andrew, you're already on stage. Uh, I joined you, um, Rob. Then you jumped up there, uh, Sophie uh, as well, and uh, we did a did a bit of a, a, a farewell. Um, our, our thoughts and uh, and and comments uh, on really uh, the the end of of that day. We obviously had our views in the moment, um, and this horse is sort of the, the euphoria that I think also we were just we managed to, to pull the whole thing uh the whole thing off. But uh, maybe Rob we'll start with you though. Um now that uh yeah, the the, the tent is has sort of been pulled down, I think. I mean, <laughs> at least from what I can see from here. But. <laughs> well, that's why I've got my chair position like this under the the radio <laughs> desk. Um, actually,
1: the best thing. I mean, as you say, in the moment it's nice to stand up there and, say, and have an amusing comment to make at the end of the uh, at the end of the um, conference. Actually, the best thing was that. I think a few things will change. I mean, in terms mm. of the 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 um, panels that I spoke on, uh, the museums one and the media one, people genuinely wanted to know what other people were doing. We didn't realize when we put this together, I guess, that people that are in the similar ballpark in terms of their profession, mm. um, don't actually have each other's email. They don't. They're in sort of some sort of competition with each other. Sure. They don't really cooperate. And in terms of, I mean, we mentioned Jack Persekin, who will be the director of the Palestinian museum. The the fact that there were people wanted to to be involved in something genuinely like that. wanted to help him yeah they absolutely. wanted to help him out they wanted to do things they wanted to share yeah. I- information knowledge mailing list whatever it might be um, which was enlightening um and and great to see and and as, as we said on all of these panels um also the fact that people just didn't necessarily agree with each other mm. there was a lot of there was a bit of there were some sparks in the room
2: well, uh, I also think that we played a video during that show, which was uh, a Korean band, uh, a bit of K-pop. And the the key line was, uh, I think it's, I want your number or I've got your number. But anyway, that's the, that, that was what was happening. I have, have your number, but yeah. Uh, but yes, yes, but I have your number. But that was what was uh, happening around that debate as well, because people were getting each other's numbers. But for me, the, the key thing I felt was, you know, that we realized this was a bit of a, an antidote to the digital revolution that... Let's, let's face it, we like to mm. meet each other. People like to have eye-to-eye contact. And just the, some of the numbers that came up, You know, Martin Roth said that just a couple of years ago there were two million people who went through the front door of the Victoria and Albert Museum every year. Now it's three and a half million people. Now that's not just because he's putting on hits, that's because people want the real, they want to see things, they want to touch things, they want to be part of a, a real world. And that's a little bit of... Uh, that i took away from it i think all whether it was retail whether it was art whether it was culture all of us are after hankering after that face to face contact no uh, and that was uh
0: it, just interesting watching how that sort of played out even immediately after so of course you know we all at the stage and then there was there was a reception afterwards you know just incredible sort of mingling and then people sort of really had to about you know 15 20 minutes to sort of dash home um and then uh, and then head off to uh, to a dinner as well which you know, we all go to enough conferences, but I think what was remarkable was, uh, aside from the fact that people said, well, it's amazing how people came to the sort of the dinner because we were sort of officially finished. How many people actually hit the dance floor?
3: Oh, yeah, there were lots of people hitting the dance floor and, until two in the morning. And I, and I think that was the, the overriding sense I got from the whole conference was, yes, everyone came away with, with other people's numbers and ideas, and you know, we'd given them a notebook at the start, and most people had their notebooks filled. Um, but they also had a great time and they'll come back to Lisbon. Most yes. of those people are definitely going to come back to Lisbon, you know, whether our next conference
0: is there or not, which, of course, leaves a question, Tyler...
3: There is going to be a next conference. Where isn't next?
0: It? Yes, it's not going to be in Lisbon next year. I was already, uh, I would probably say, by you know, sometimes just after midnight. I, I was, it was pretty clear that we we're going to go to to Asia. And then I thought one of the things that really made this um, uh, an exceptional um, conference was uh, that we were able to deploy so many people there. You know, some sixty staff, uh, both from from Monocle, also our colleagues uh, from from Wink Creative joined us. So I think we're going to keep it um, close at home. I think it's going to be in Europe next year. We're going to go out on a um, yeah, we're going to have an expedition. We're going to head east from London, not to East London. Uh, but we are going to uh, head directions east. Uh, but it was going to be Bangkok. But uh, no, we're going to probably stay a little bit closer to home. Hopefully we'll, we'll reveal uh, where we'll be probably, what do you think, by the July-August issue, I think we should.
1: I'm keeping
2: uh, a page on that issue for uh, for the announcement. So
1: let's well, get best ready. Base, uh, you, I, I wonder, I'm just glad you had a clear thought after midnight and will there be a special
0: subscribers section of the website where pictures from the dance floor will be available? I think so um, <laughs> in in, in yeah. the coming days but um, as I said you know, we talked about human capital um, I think that was one of the things that made this really outstanding uh, Some just a special thanks before we go to um, our director of communications Emily Smith um, Kim D'Aragon, who really just did a, a remarkable job on uh, on logistics. Uh, Guy Lutz, uh, who brought in and really—is uh, there such a thing as a speaker wrangler? Then, if there is, then she needs chaps and a lasso. <laughs> that—and uh, she looked good at it as well. Eric, no, no, definitely not. Um, also, Marcus Hippie and uh, and Danny Giacopelli on the day, who did uh, really a, a superb job uh, producing. They never thought they were going to grow up to be stage managers, but but they are. Um, Alex Funnel, who was looking after all of the. Uh, yeah, the sound um, playing in the vision. Uh, Gillian DeBias uh, with all of her films, uh, and also uh, behind the glass, also uh, our, our very own uh, Tom Edwards uh, as well. We were going to play out um, with with Louisa Zabral, but a great girl, we've had enough. Of her, but I think we should probably have something from Shiny. This is uh, a little. Uh, this this is with with uh, your number. Um, thanks very much for listening. Goodbye.
5: Yeah.